The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. All right, any questions on uh, what we were just um, talking about before we move on to uh, verses 4 and 5? Yeah, of course, I don't think... Well, it's hard to say. Different people think and work differently. I don't know that anybody takes a list and then begins to test each one of them throughout. I think what usually happens is, you know, you're working through the text and um, something just comes to mind of, of a situation that would, would reasonably account for what you're reading in the text. And then uh, you look at another paragraph and you find that it either confirms or, or weakens that particular picture. And uh, so I don't think people, maybe most people run through it, through its seriatim. It's more, you know, you're working your way through the text and then uh, as various possibilities come up, uh, you check them against other passages, whatever. But the end result should be the same thing, namely that um, the view that should commend yourself, uh, commend itself to you, is one that accounts for the largest number of facts without feeling that you're either having to press, you know, ambiguous sentences or or having to add a lot of information that's not already there in the text. But we'll we'll deal with historical reconstruction in more detail at a later point. <clears throat> okay, let's move on then to uh, this third point, an affirmation of the gospel of grace. Um, as I already mentioned, this is the only Pauline opening in which Paul doesn't stop after the greeting. <clears throat> And by the way, um, another possible title for this heading, instead of an affirmation of the gospel of grace, could be the truth of the gospel, because that's uh, an actual phrase that Paul uses a couple of times in chapter 2, verses, verses five, through 5 and 14. My note also, Colossians 1, 5. First of all, our deliverance. Lightfoot is quite right, I believe, when he says that the word excelletai, and this is um, this passage as the only uh, Pauline occurrence of this verb exireo. The word excelletai, he says, strikes the, the keynote of the epistle. The gospel is a rescue, an emancipation from a state of bondage. Now, notice that See, if you're just reading along and uh, you see rescue, you might view this in a purely metaphorical sense and not be struck by, by this whole conception of being emancipated from a state of bondage. That additional semantic content comes from the, from the other passages in the epistle where the idea is explicit. 
But uh, knowing what the rest of the letter says, uh, I think Lightfoot's conclusion is um, uh, inescapable, that the verb is not coincidental or, or uh, you know, innocuous, but it, it specifically reflects that concern with uh, freedom. What is a little surprising, however, <coughs> is um, what, what it is that Paul says we are to be delivered from. Again, if you're working on the basis of the rest of the letter, you might have expected something else, maybe uh, to deliver us from the law, or at least from the curse of the law. That expectation is so strong that, as a matter of fact, some commentators interpret the, the, the noun ion just in that way, uh, as though it's a reference to the law. But I, I think that's quite unnecessary. Um, other possibilities might be dulea, that is to rescue us from servitude, uh, or some of the terms that we find as, as the object of the verbal eutherao in Romans. Uh, for example, uh, sin, to be rescued from sin, or from the law of sin, or from heiduleia teis thoras, the servitude of corruption. All of these things would have appeared to be more uh, fitting to be the object of the, of the verb exirel. The construction here, ho nun ion, or no, rather, ho, that's what you normally have, ho nun ion. Here you have uh, to ionos to enestotas poniru. That construction is unique. And uh, the, uh, the position of poniru which almost looks detached from the, uh, from the phrase, is clearly emphatic. Uh, in fact, uh, Lightfoot paraphrases that by saying the present world, with all its evils, with all its evils, to bring out that uh, emphasis. The main point, however, is that although the age is described as present, yet Paul is telling us that we're delivered from it. And that very formulation assumes an overlapping of the old age and the new age in the life of the believer. Now this is a fundamental significance since the Galatians' basic problem was to a large extent one of failing to understand the character of redemptive history. Now we'll, we'll be talking about various points, uh, one of the chapters that you will be reading in, in this thing it will, will be an um, uh, adaptation of a, uh, an article that I had published in a uh, fester of last year where I tried, where I'd go through the whole letter to the Galatians and try to look for a possible eschatological um, nuances or, or explicit statements. And uh, once you start doing that, it's quite uh, remarkable because, particularly in the light of the fact that many commentators, many Pauline scholars have routinely viewed Galatians as not having much of an eschatological flavor. 
but um, it's uh, it's remarkable how much of the letter. I mean, what what a uh, a, a deep undercurrent eschatology, redemptive history, is for the whole argument that the law covenant contrast is a redemptive historical contrast. The concept of the fullness of time, uh, all kinds of things in the letter point to uh, this overlapping of the ages and uh, the hope that we will be delivered from the present evil age. It is present, so we're part of it, yet we're delivered from it, which uh, indicates that we're part of, of another age as well. Uh, secondly, the uh, note of Christ's uh, giving uh, of himself, uh, the point is that the very means of deliverance, this excelletai, the means of that deliverance is the uh, self-sacrifice of Christ. Now again, um, you can see that the concept is important for the epistle. Uh, chapter 2, verse 20, paradontas heauton. By the way, a, a minor linguistic note here. Uh, notice that here in 1.4, um, in uh, he gave himself huperton hamartion hemon for our sins. Um, whereas in, in 2.20 you have um, he gave himself huper emu for me. Did Christ give himself over for sins or for people? It's kind of a curious um, uh, ambiguity in, in uh, the preposition who per. The proper object is the person. The, uh, it's the same problem, you know, when you say, I, I took something for my cold, which if you interpret literally is not really what you mean. You, you really took it for you. Uh, but uh, the cold is the improper object and uh, it is assumed, I mean, so much in language that is more or less elliptical and, and, and the context makes, makes perfectly plain what you're talking about. So Christ gives himself for us, but uh, because the, the issue has to do with our sin, uh, you can sort of abbreviate the idea by saying he gave himself for our sins as in 1.4, but not in 2.20. Uh, again, in chapter 3, verse, verse 13, where uh, Christ is said to have become katara, or a curse. And uh, in, elsewhere in Paul, for example, Ephesians 5.2, paredo ken heoton huper hemon. And again, in, in verse 25 of the same chapter, Ephesians 5. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.6, uh, Titus 2.14, and so on. Within the context of Galatians, the point that Paul wishes to emphasize is that the law and circumcision are not the means of deliverance. The deliverance is a gracious act on God's part. So again, you have a negative involved here. The, the point of the letter is to exclude certain things uh, as the means of deliverance, the law, particularly circumcision. Finally, the last thing that I want to mention here, uh, Paul's asseveration. Um, 
point is that you have an unexpected comment here about kata to thele matutheu. I say unexpected in the sense that in this kind of context uh, you don't find that expression, but uh, it, it does lend a particular force to Paul's statement. The point is that it is right, it is a, a good thing, it is a right thing, it is a divinely uh, authorized thing, if you will, that Christ should have suffered for us. And because of the rightness of what God has done, Praise truly belongs to him. You know the problem with this kind of expression, whether the verb to be supplied should be indicative or, or imperative. Uh, uh, his is the glory forever, or to him be the glory forever. Um, I, I would prefer to supply estin, uh, is the glory, although very difficult to, um, to prove that sort of thing. And maybe Paul wasn't really trying to distinguish. Bruce, uh, in his commentary, notes that doxology has a unique position here. Um, it's certainly absent in the openings of Paul's other letters. And he attributes its presence here to the force of verse 4, or possibly to the fact that the letter does not have a thanksgiving. That's an interesting question. Well, I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But... Um, uh, could you view this doxology as uh, the substitute for the usual thanksgiving that you find in the other letters? I don't know about that. Uh, I, think, uh, I think I'd rather go with the other uh, possibility that uh, verse 4 is, is such a powerful statement that uh, it just calls for uh, you know, a little pause here to uh, acknowledge God's, uh, God's glorious work. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, when Bruce says unique is that in, 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 in an opening is not to be expected, but I think you're right, uh, and that's Bruce's point as well, I suppose, that uh, where you do find doxologies, they come as a response to something particularly gripping, and that's exactly what we have here. All right, any questions on the opening? Yeah. Um, the moment I heard, he was talking about verses 4 and 5 as being a primitive Christian doxology. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, there is a, f a fairly significant consensus among Pauline scholars that because, uh, well, ex I mentioned that Excelita is unique here in Paul's letters, for example. Uh, and that you have other unusual expressions and, and so on and so forth. Um, there are a number of scholars you know who, and I don't mean this necessarily in a negative sense, but they're always looking not so much for what the text says, but for what allows them to reconstruct early Christian worship or practice and that kind of thing. And um, if you know, if you start looking in the text and, and you're specifically looking for things that might indicate some prior formulaic language that might have arisen in the context of worship and now Paul is using it in some sense, 
then you come across this passage and, and you do find features that might fit that idea. Um, how you can neither prove nor disprove this sort of thing. You know, this is the, the problem with that kind of argumentation. And um, there are some that are more persuasive than others, particularly if there's a very strong poetic force, like in First uh, Timothy 3, you know, 16 and so on, and uh, other passages like that. And, and uh, it seems very reasonable. Even there, you cannot prove it. Uh, here, I personally, I think it's pushing it. But um, who knows? No, I don't think he would necessarily. Um, in fact, the origin of a phrase like this, I think, uh, is not particularly relevant to that question. In other words, if it is unique in Paul, or if it is distinctive in comparison with other letters, whether he is using something that the church was already familiar with and, and puts it here, or whether he just comes up with it as his own composition. Either way, I think it would have, if not absolutely the same, a very similar effect. But I, I don't know that Longenecker himself might want to um, draw that kind of implication. Anything else? <clears throat> well, let's move on then to um, the occasion, verses 6 through 10. Let me begin uh, <clears throat> before we actually uh, discuss the text. There are a couple of introductory comments I want to make which have to do with the structure of this passage. Um, one question has to do with whether uh, this paragraph marks the beginning of the body of the letter. There are a number of commentators who would handle it that way. Now, if you take that position, that it is the beginning of the body and not part of the introduction, then you would want to attempt to relate this paragraph closely to the, to the other concerns in, ch in the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, so on. But uh, when you, when just asking that question, you see, or, or just raising that possibility, uh, helps you see, at least helps me to see, that the concerns of verses 6 through 10 appear to be more general than what you have in the rest of chapters 1 and 2. And that is one important reason why I continue to think that it is better to uh, take verses 6 through 10 as still part of the introduction. Um, another related question has to do whether the, the, the what, what is the end of the introduction specifically. Uh, for example, in, your, in the Nestle Allen text, the new paragraph is verse 10 where I'm taking the beginning of the new paragraph in verse 11. I'll talk about that when, when I get there. Uh, others, Bly, for example, think um, that the uh, new paragraph begins with verse 12. That is really unlikely, and I think it's a good example of, of the kind of thing that um, 
results from you know, his whole chiastic approach, and it probably would not have occurred to somebody if you hadn't had this big framework, uh, and now you, you find yourself trying to look for the chiasms. But perhaps the most significant uh, structural point is the absence of the verb eucharisto. Eucharisto is found in the introductions of Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Philippians. In the first person plural, Eucharistumen, in Colossians and 1 Thessalonians. In the idiom Eucharisteinophelomen, we ought to give thanks in 2 Thessalonians. And then the roughly equivalent phrase, not Eucharisto or Eucharistumen, but Eugaletos, Eulogetos, blessed, um, blessed be God in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. Every epistle of Paul after the greeting has a word of thanksgiving and or praise to God that is worked into what he has done for the church that he's writing to. And even, you know, of all churches, the Corinthian church, that church that I don't think any of us would remain a member, even if, if, it only, if, if we had found a church that had only half the problems that the Corinthian church, we would probably say, that church is not for me. Uh, and we would give up on it. Uh, but even there, Paul has an Eucharisto. But not here. The last word one would expect to meet here is thaumatsu. I am amazed. I am astonished. And uh, I think it is a mistake that um, well, for example, uh, Walt Hansen in his, in his dissertation that was published and he has a little commentary, not a little commentary, but it's fairly substantive, actually, in this new IVP series. And uh, he takes um, a particular view regarding the structure of the letter that uh, you'll be reading about for next week. Uh, the um, rebuke request division in the letter. And uh, he, as well as some others, argue that um, Thaumatso is a form, is a letter form. And uh, it is part of what is expected in certain kinds of letters that begin with a rebuke. So, and so he finds some examples of people, you know, the mother that writes to the child, I am amazed that you haven't written to me after all these years. And um, actually there is, there is some uh, truth to this, and all of us do that, you know. Uh, if, if you want to make an argument and, uh, and, and you want this a certain rhetorical flair that we use even sometimes unconsciously, I am just perplexed by what you're saying, you know, which what you really mean is uh, you're dead wrong. Um, or uh, a common one, particularly now among the uh, understated British scholars is, um, I confess that, you know, uh, I don't understand this or the other. But um, so I, I don't deny that 
you know, the, the use of this kind of expression may, may reflect certain kinds of things that one does. But to point that out uh, in a way that in fact, in fact minimizes the, again, the unpredictability of this word and, and therefore the uh, semantic force and even shock, uh, particularly for somebody used to reading Paul's letters, uh, that, that would be a great mistake. Anyway, let's look at um, the, the, the nature, the lapse of the Galatians, what's happened to them. First of all, it's character. What the Galatians have done must be viewed as a lapse from grace. That's exactly the way that Paul puts it, you know, in chapter 5, verse 4. Teis caritas exepesate. You have fallen from grace. And that is paralleled in, in, in 5.4 to that very strong expression, katergethete apocryste. You have been, you know, almost disconnected from Christ. Those two independent thoughts in chapter 5, verse 4, separation from grace on the one hand and separation from a person on the other, those two thoughts are combined here in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, you have uh, removed yourself from the one, that's the person, who called you in grace, that's the, uh, the object. So the note of grace is not only made explicit by encarity, but it is also emphasized by the tukalesantos, the one who called you. Because that expression, as you know, strongly indicates for Paul the very notion of uh, divine initiative and even election. With regard to the term metatithemai, this is a middle voice, uh, it can indicate to change one's mind, but as you probably read, uh, the, uh, the more sp specific uh, sense of uh, a change of allegiance, a change of allegiance is clearly established. And uh, some people like the translation, you know, you're going over, as you might uh, in, in describing uh, a, a traitor who goes over to the other side. There are political references, that is, uh, passages where this verb is used in political context, in Plutarch, Polybius, and, and others, such as going over to the Romans, so on. <clears throat> Perhaps significant for Galatians is the fact that uh, you can use the participle ha metathemenos, ha metathemenos, in the sense of a renegade. Uh, and that became the nickname of this fellow Dionysius on account of his leaving the Stoics and going over to the uh, Epicureans. Uh, perhaps more significant is a reference in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, 2 Maccabees 7, verse 24, where Antiochus addresses the, um, remember the story of these seven brothers, uh, who have been martyred, and now he's talking to the last of them, and promises him wealth and honor, metathemenon apaton patrion, if he should desert or turn apostate from the patriarchal customs. Uh, 
if he were to give up his father's laws and so on. In any case, uh, by the way, this is something that I didn't talk about in the chapter uh, that you read for this week. Uh, this is a, uh, a funny one. Uh, when you're dealing with lexical semantics, you notice what I have just done here. I have called your attention to the fact that here this verb metatithemi, tithemi, is used in political context and, and uh, some, sometimes in military context of going over. And uh, I leave, the implication is, you see, that um, there's something inherent in the word about being a traitor. And it's very difficult sometimes to, to draw the line here uh, because, as a matter of fact, that's precisely the way that uh, words tend to uh, undergo semantic change, particularly specialization. They're used more and more frequently within a particular kind of context, and by virtue of that use, the word begins to take on some of the, some of the associations uh, of those contexts. Um, but... Um, you know, being able to identify when that has or has not happened is another question altogether. And the only way that you can be sure is if you find that meaning in passages where, where there's nothing else in the context that contributes that semantic content. In other words, the word, it's, the word by itself is clearly indicating that particular semantic feature that's the proof that by the association of the word in all these contexts, it has now changed its meaning itself. And whether you can do that with this verb or not is, is an interesting question. I, I myself don't think I can yet prove that. But um, uh, here, fortunately, in this particular verse, it's not that big of a problem because the context here as well uh, also has the notion of, of somebody you know, departing from one uh, allegiance to another. Uh, but the question remains whether the verb by itself would, would indicate that uh, idea of, of treason or, uh, or, or giving up a particular commitment as opposed to simply um, making a change. Now, here we come into that interesting problem that I also deal with in the chapter for today, whether or not there's a semantic distinction intended between heteron and Allah. And uh, I don't know that I want to take the time uh, here in class to go over that, the way that we uh, talked about uh, the prepositions apa and uh, dia. But... Um, I'm not going to do it, and I, let me just simply pause and ask to see if you had any questions about that uh, discussion, which is in, um, on pages 30 to 31, 30 to 31. Anything there that wasn't clear or you think needs further um, discussion? The... Um, The bottom line is that um, quite uncertain, and uh, the the uncertainty itself, I think, would be an argument not to make too much of it. There's just too many too many uh, instances where the uh, where the words are used interchangeably, 
And um, I, I am tempted to look at this primarily as a, st a stylistic thing. Um, in English, we can't, we, we only have, you know, the word another. But in Greek, if you have two words, why repeat it? You know, use another word uh, for another. And uh, can be absolutely certain, but uh, I would be very, very hesitant to read too much into the, uh, the, into the supposed distinction. Yeah. Right. I think generally in Western languages that uh, that is fairly common, at least in the um, um, you know the better known literary uh, bodies of literature we have, such as Greek and Latin and the European languages generally. Um, there's a tendency to, um, but obviously, you know, a good writer is going to be discreet about this because there is this danger sometimes in a particular context that uh, somebody may think you're now addressing a different subject. And um, I think part of the, re of the answer to that has to do with what kind of a word you're, you're talking about. Because, you know, I give, remember when I gave the example from my own paragraph um, where I used the word difference and I used the word distinction and then variation, then author, writer, or chosen up to... Those are not key words, you know. And, uh, and a reader would not even be aware that you're varying here. In fact, if you repeated it, then you, you become aware that something's being repeated. So I think the type of word has uh, quite a bit to do with whether it is wise to, uh, to do this or not. <coughs> Anyway, uh, let me just make one more comment about uh, <clears throat> the, the character of the Galatians lapse, and that is that clearly, at least to my mind clearly, what is in view here is apostasy. But it is important to note the present tense. I'm not talking about verbal aspect, but, but the tense, you know, present as opposed to past or future. My point is that Paul is representing the Galatians as being in, in a process. This is happening now, uh, a, a process that leads to apostasy. And uh, elsewhere in the letter, while Paul can express significant fear, as in chapter 4, verse 20, He's still in a position, or they are still in a position, where he can call them brethren, and he can express confidence in them. You know, pepoitha is humas, chapter 5, verse 10. I am confident in you uh, that uh, this is not going to, uh, to lead to, uh, um, well, apostasy, I think. Second thing I wanted to um, talk about was the cause for the Galatians' lapse and that you have in verse 7, which explains really why Paul had in the first place used the expression, another gospel, heteron euangelion. The point is that some have perverted the true gospel. By the way, the, uh, the pronoun tines, an indefinite pronoun, by itself can bear a negative nuance, as in chapter 2, verse 12, and in 2 Corinthians 10, 2, 
Uh, in 2 Corinthians 10.2, Paul says, uh, he says he expects to tomesai epitinas tus logitsomenus heimas hos katasarka peripatuntas. To be bold toward some who reckon us as being people who walk according to the flesh. This uh, pejorative sense of, of some, I mean, even in English we can do that. There's some people, you know. Um, and uh, that may be implied here as well. John Bly, in his uh, commentary, uh, paraphrases. Uh, I could name them, but I won't. And then you have this verb, tarasontes. That, for me, that verb confirms the military or political figure of what's happening in this passage. In other words, uh, it's important for you to realize that Paul is not speaking, at least not primarily, about being emotionally troubled. You understand what I'm saying here? When he says they're troubling you, the point is not that they're making you feel bothered. And rather, uh, the idea is, is of that of stirring up a sedition. Uh, the word is used again of uh, some, some individual in chapter 5, verse 10. And that is followed by another political term, uh, anastata, in verse 12, those who are... Uh, uh, you know, troubling you. There's also what you might call political language in chapter 2, verse 4. The uh, false brethren who have uh, kind of insinuated themselves into the group to spy out our freedom, etc. I might, uh, I don't want to make too much of this, but uh, Luke uses the verb tarasso in Acts 15, in connection with the, uh, in the context of the Apostolic Council, where the concerns are similar to those in Galatians, uh, Luke also uses the verb of the uproar in Thessalonica in chapter 17. Uh, Anastatao shows up in, in that uh, chapter as well in Acts 17, and so on. Um, so the cause of the lapse is the presence of people who have been stirring up sedition and uh, leading people to uh, go over to another gospel. Then thirdly, uh, the suddenness of this lapse. And I'm talking here about the phrase hutos tacheos, hutos tacheos, suggesting that, that Paul's alarm about what's happening uh, was directly related to the quickness with which the Galatians received the other gospel. Now, of course, you know, I don't need to emphasize this, Paul would have been upset even if the apostasy had, had not taken place so soon. I mean, apostasy is apostasy. But surely there is a particular disgrace attached to their almost thoughtless change. I think that's part of what's going on here, it's, it's almost thoughtless, as though they had been hypnotized to use the phraseology of chapter 3, verse 1. Now, it is a question of some importance whether the point of reference is from their conversion or from the moment when they were first tempted by these seducers. And you know that has played a, a, a big role in the questions about the dating of the letter. 
If it's the former, Paul is saying so quickly after being converted, uh, this would support an early date for the letter. If the latter, uh, how quickly after being exposed to this heresy, uh, then that would add drama, I think, to the possibility that the letter was written from Ephesus right after Paul had been with them. Um, you can't prove either, and, and uh, here again, it's a, it's a good example of a passage that, by virtue of its ambiguity, uh, you know, has to be handled with the right logical priority. You cannot come to this verse and, on the base of it, make an argument for an earlier late date. You've got to come up with that theory on, on firmer basis than that, and then you ask the question, all right, in view of this, can I understand this verse uh, without forcing it uh, to fit my broader understanding based on other material? When the uh, adverb tacheos is used unfavorably, and there are a number of examples of that, uh, you, you really get the nuance of rashness, how rash uh, this is. Uh, you might look at the Septuagint of uh, Proverbs 25.8. As uh, Lightfoot points out, the present of uh, metatithes in verse 6 naturally supports the notion that they have so easily allowed themselves to be led astray. And uh, this raises a question about the, uh, the temperament of the Galatians. Uh, as you may know, Lightfoot... Um, argued very strongly for a North Galatian hypothesis, and one of his primary arguments was some historical evidence that the people living in the northern part of the province, uh, and more generally, people of a, a, a Gallic uh, uh, ethnic identity, had a reputation for being fickle. So, because you, you can establish, I mean, Julius Caesar tells you in so many words, that the Gauls were fickle, and the people who inhabited Galatia, Galatia, I mean, the word Galatia comes from the Gauls, okay, who moved into that area a couple of centuries before Christ. Um, and that, therefore, a North Galatian hypothesis fits much better the way in which Paul describes these people. You know, foolish Galatians, you've been hypnotized. You have so quickly deserted and so on and so forth. The only problem with that argument is that everybody's fickle. Um, not excluding the southern, the South Galatians. After all, we know that the inhabitants of Lystra one day worshipped Paul as though he were Hermes, and the next day they stoned him. So uh, you don't need to, uh, to go all the way up to North Galatia to find examples of uh, fickleness. And I say that with apologies to my idol Lightfoot. Anyway, um, any questions on? Uh, hmm, 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 hmm. I'm um, debating here whether go on with verse eight or whether to say something more. Maybe, let me just ask you at this point: Is there something? The, the the first part of the chapter for today had to do with textual criticism. And the example I'm taking is from chapter 1, verse 11, and we, we haven't gotten there yet. 
So let's not talk about that. But uh, is there something else in the chapter uh, that maybe you wanted to bring up um, before we um, go home today? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Oh, you do want to talk about textual criticism. Okay. That, that's the one that I want to wait until we get to verse 11 okay. next week. But in the, the rest of the material, uh, dealing with both uh, questions of vocabulary and then uh, syntax, matter of cases, and, and uh, uh, was there anything? Yeah. If he is writing to the churches in Lystra and Derby and so on, The whole thing makes pretty good sense because from the narrative of Acts 13 and 14, it is, it is plain that uh, these towns you know, were very close to each other to begin with and that the actual establishment of the churches took place you know, in, in one movement or campaign and, and he establishes the churches this way and then he returns and visits them again. and. Um, uh, if you take a, a late date, as I do, then you have Paul visiting them again the second time and then again the third time. And uh, if indeed he's writing Galatians after visiting, visiting them a third time and uh, he's gone to Ephesus and then maybe after being in Ephesus for a couple of months or maybe half a year or whatever, he gets news about what's happening in the region, um, he would probably have fairly good information as to the churches affected and uh, um, you know, here's a region, you know, there are a number of churches and they're all part of, of, of this particular experience. All these towns you know, were very small. Um, it's, I think sometimes we lose perspective on that kind of thing. I remember when I went to uh, Israel, um, it's been over 10 years now, but we, uh, you, go to all these towns, you know, and then all of a sudden you go to, um, uh, oh, up north, um, it starts with a head. Um, I, can't, I can't think of it now. But um, you go up to the tell and then the, uh, the guy tells you, now this is a very large city. In fact, if you look out there to the edge of uh, where the trees are and you look around and you say, wow, what a, this was really a, a big city because you've been going to all these little tells, you see. And I was being very impressed by this and uh, Hatsor, I'm talking about. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, wait a minute, you can easily put this whole city in the parking lot of the Willow Grove Mall. You know, uh, and um, so that has to, uh, you know, affect the way in which we look at some of these uh, situations. But, oh, yeah. Um, my book you're talking about here. Yeah, I, I should have given you a tentative table of contents. Um, I'm, I'm working desperately to try to get, you know, stuff done before you run out of material, and, and I don't know if it's going to happen, but. Uh, um, my idea is to, to take every major aspect of exegetical discussion, uh, textual criticism, linguistics, literary structure, which is what you have for next time, 
historical problems, which is what I'm working on right now, uh, matters of biblical theology, systematic theology, the, the place of the law, that kind of thing. So that um, uh, presumably somebody who goes through that whole book would have, with the additional benefit of, of being focused on one particular book as opposed to taking examples from all over the place, which tends to blur things a little bit perhaps, uh, will have gone through all of these major questions that arise in, in the course of exegetical work. And um, Yeah, how do you go about making up your mind on, on uh, all kinds of exegetical problems? What I intend to do next week is to keep going here and get through verse 12. Then I'm going to go, then we're going to go back to the rest of the chapter you read for today and also the chapter that you will have read for, tomorrow, for next week although it partly depends on how much I get done, and I may just kind of push things uh, a little, we will see. Actually, what you're supposed to tell me is we will not allow you to do that, and then it will force me to, uh, to get that done. If I get the one in history done, we're in pretty good shape because I have a lot of material for the other chapters, which is just a matter of adapting. But, uh, so, um, so I would say uh, keep working on, on, the, on preparing the rest of chapter one, I don't know that we'll, how far we will get in, uh, in chapter one for next week. It depends on, on how the uh, discussion goes. And if you have your critiques for today, uh, just drop them here.